0: Last week, we started with... a basic concept of you know how to do the inductive Bible study process and so we went through and we broke it down showing you s- some of the tools in the toolbox and what are the purposes of inductive Bible study and what are the, uh, the what are the, basically the goals and the aims of doing this particular method of study and that's in fact what it is it is a method of study and so along with studying God's Word and and just delighting I mean the the insights that we are going to gain by doing this study in this method are so phenomenal you will just be beyond yourself with excitement once you come to see the real understanding of some of these things that maybe before you've only stepped into and looked at briefly and then left right or sometimes it's a cross-reference you drop in you get some understanding and then you move on to something else but to take the book apart the way that we are going to do it builds a foundation of understanding that's beyond that you know, superficial level. And when you do it in that manner, you just get such a richness in it. And it's so delighting to see how this book is going to really unfold beautifully and and with such a a rhythm and a succinct message. And it's going to just flow. And once you're done, you're going, I get it totally. It makes such sense. Um, We... um. One of the things we are aiming at in inductive study is to rightly divide the word of truth. We've talked about that before, that God would help us to, you know, study to show ourselves approved, right? That we won't be ashamed of the way that we end, end up trying to teach or, and often failing <laughs> or feeling like we fail anyway in uh, explaining biblical truths or, or points to people, right? If you want to share your faith, you want to be articulate and you want to be um, practical and real and you want to make it understandable to them. So uh, Kathleen Bird sent me an email this week that was from the Days of Praise. It's an um, uh, online daily devotional and the author in this was Henry M. Morris II and he talks on this subject of rightly dividing the word and I'm just going to read you a couple of things because there are two scripture verses that he gives that just kind of support what we went through last week and to help kind of just uh, layer on top of that, a little bit more icing for us, okay? He says, the key to rightly divide the scriptures, the, the Greek word is uh, ortho mio, only used this one time, has several shades of meaning. It means to cut straight, to cut straight ways, to proceed on straight paths, to hold a straight course, to make straight and smooth, and to handle aright. And then in conclusion, it means to teach the truth directly and correctly. <laughs> I love that. Two passages emphasize the way to divide scripture. When Isaiah asked rhetorical questions about how to learn and understand biblical knowledge, the answer was, precept must be upon precept. There you go. That's And that is the theme verse for Precept Ministries, is this one right here. Precept must be upon precept, precept upon precept, line upon line, line upon line, here a little, there a little. That's out of Isaiah 28, 9 and 10. And I just love that verse and the fact that it was uh, her daily devotional that came the day that we had our uh, opening teaching last week it was so cool. Because she went home, she said, wouldn't believe what I got in the mail, and so she sent it. So here's, here's how you go about that. He says, find the major pieces first, then find the supporting elements next, and then find the pieces throughout the text. So you're going to do it again, precept upon precept, line upon line, little by little, right? Here a little, there a little. Solomon said it this way, he was of course a very wise teacher great insight noted that one who would teach the people knowledge must give good heed and sought out to set in order many proverbs so in other words the teacher has to be prepared themselves as well now i'm speaking this to you as though i'm saying you all are teacher not i'm not speaking to me i'm speaking of you that if in this um, study the the point is to train up and equip the saints for works of service right and as you become, therefore, in your activities and works of service, whatever they are, there's opportunity for you to teach, to, to express your insights, to give encouragement, to, to steer people in the right way, or in the course of conversation to lay into their lives understanding of God's understanding or God's truths or God's way of thinking on certain subjects. The world has their own way, right? They, and it's, totally contrary to what God's word actually says. So he says in here uh, concerning Solomon's message in Ecclesiastes 12.9, he says, pay attention to the words, meanings, and context. Very interesting. Penetrate or research the teaching, uh, the text first, and then go to your books, right? Immediate scriptural only first and then later we'll do commentary research to see what others have to say about it. And then he says organize the information for teaching purposes. Now I think in that particular statement there he is actually speaking about maybe a pastor or a teacher that would organize, right? But but even still I got to tell you for me personally doing what we do each week here on the board where we kind of organize the the facts and information into columns and charts, it really does help solidify in my mind kind of the, the bigger picture and it also makes the message clearer to me. At the end of our discussions each week, you know, it's our goal that we understand what we looked at that week better. And so I think that still applies here. Organizing the information in a, such a way that you get it, you understand what you've now looked at when you're taking things apart, sometimes you get so far down into the little circle of that one word or that one phrase or that one subject that you kind of lose the bigger picture that is around you, that context. And so it's helpful at the end of those weeks where you dug in deeply into a certain subject, then to step back again and place it into the whole and say, what was going on on the whole? So why is this subject that you just spent so much time looking at, what does that have to do with the author's purpose in in what he's trying to convey. So this kind of steady preparation requires a workman, one who is willing to give the diligence necessary to produce the uh, the powerful sayings built on the word of truth. If properly prepared, the workman will never be ashamed. I love that. That was so sweet of her to send that. So I hope that was an encouragement to you. I love that. Isaiah 28, 9 and 10, precept upon precept. Okay, so with that said, we are ready to dig in and lay this out. I want to just review a couple of things here for you. I forgot to put my titles. We're going to put up here context, and then we are going to look after we set some of that information in place. We want to look at the author, and we want to look at the recipients. And from from this foundation then we can go on and begin to build our at-a-glance chart together. We are not going to title all 16 chapters, we're only going to do the first six as you did in your homework, Um, but we are going to look at the at the segment divisions, how these laid out in divisions that you should have been able to observe on your own, but if you didn't we'll help you out with that this morning, okay? All right. context. How do you set context? And why do we want to set context? What is our rule about context in precept? There you go. Context is king. I love that. Context is king. All right. So if context is king, then how do we get there? Number one, prayer. And I'm gonna and I'm gonna take you through these steps just very quickly. But prayer uh, is is the connection between you and God, where you are inviting God into the moment of your study hour and into and into the the time of your meditating upon what you've even looked at that week. So invite God into your study. Um, it is He ultimately that is both the author of the word itself, the text itself. And he is truly our teacher. Through the Holy Spirit, God is our teacher, not not me, not even one another, not even our commentaries, but the real teacher is the Lord who's going to reveal these truths to us. So we want to start with prayer. The second thing is to read and reread. All right, now... Th- Obviously, this—I mean, to me, I probably don't have to say it—but the benefit of rereading is, and reading and rereading is to familiarize yourself with the whole. Right? If you and I s- stop reading the book on the whole, what happens is we get focused on the one subject that we're going to be in. Did you all notice that the subjects pretty much segmented themselves out? That you could see a, su- a subject here, and then a subject here, and then a subject here as you went through and if you did what you're going to know is that as we go through chapter by chapter one week we're we're going to be in one subject and what's going to happen is we're going to pigeonhole in our thinking and we're going to focus on just that one thing and not lay it against the whole so it's really important and you know some books may be even more so than others but i say it's good always to stop at some point in your week and just take a moment to read through that whole that whole book again. Uh, Do it on a regular basis. I, you know, I know the challenge to do it every week is big, but maybe you could do it once every two or three weeks anyway, just so that you go back to the whole. You want to always hold it in context to the whole picture. Okay, so read and reread the whole book. Um, The next step is what we want to do right now. We want to identify the literary style. So, what do you think, when you look at 1 Corinthians, how how would you identify this particular literary style? It's a letter. Now, how do you know that, having done your work this week? I, Paul, and and he says, speaks directly to them, doesn't he? So you see a very clear opening. You know, we kind of, I know you guys are kind of laughing about this, but honestly, people who have never done inductive study, they don't pay attention to these things. They kind of skirt right past that, and they don't even, it just doesn't register even. It's kind of like, it's there, but they ignore it or something it just doesn't connect but what's really cool is when you stop to, to actually analyze what you're looking at it's very essential that you and I understand the literary work we're in because that determines what what is the d- determining our literary style do for us as inductive students there you go it helps you understand how to interpret what you're looking at because if you're looking at a letter how do you interpret a letter When a letter comes to you in the mail, what do you, and you read what's said on the paper, what? He's, and is what he's, okay, okay, there's a purpose for why they are writing, and it gives you facts, information, very good, and is it interpreted literally, or, or, okay, okay. So people who often talk about the Bible, and how it's, metaphorical or it's imagery or it's, you know, it's it's stories, but it's more like parables, right? And then they take that and it makes it subjective to be able to make an, an interpretation on things however they want. But what we are learning is if you look at God's word as you do any literary piece of writing as using the commonly known and understood literary forms and then apply those literary forms of interpretation to it then you're going to get correct and and at least hopefully more sound interpretations on things just by doing that one step okay so it's a letter therefore we interpret it lit it's literal interpretation it's facts right People, places, events. All right, so it's easily identified as, let's write this in here. I'm going to add a different color here to make it stand out. So First Corinthians, oh, that's not a good marker. You know, I hate it when you buy brand new markers and they're, and they're so wimpy. <laughs> Where's the bold color? <laughs> Don't they know? That's a little better. Okay, so 1 Corinthians uh, is a letter. What we see in it is in, in for instance, in 1, 1 to 3 is a greeting, right? And when you get to the end of it in 16, 19 to 24, what do you have? a closing. And actually all pretty much all of chapter 16 is kind of a closing. He starts giving a list of things that he uh, last minute thoughts and he wants to address or at least touch on them to hit, to them. Uh and we'll tear that apart better later, but for now what we understand is that is there anything in chapter 16 about this being a letter that stood out to you? Flip over to chapter 16 and see if you circled or highlighted or marked any piece of information in there about about Paul writing this letter. There you go. Good girl. And this was a letter written by Paul's own hand. That's pretty cool. And that sure does make that a clear observation that the literary style is a letter. I've written this by my own hand, he greets them in the beginning and he, and he gives a closing at the end. So it's, it follows the pattern of any letter that we have, right? Okay, now the next thing is we want to look at in, uh, in setting context, we want to look at the things that are most obvious in a letter. Now if you've got a letter, what is most obvious in that will always be The people that it is written to, and the one who wrote it. So you're going to need to then slow down as an inductive student and take the time to get to know who is the author and who is the recipient from the clues that are within the text. You know, not your outside information and not from just supposition, but from what literally he tells you factually from the scripture. So you're going to carefully observe the obvious. Um, I'm going to just mention to you one of the things I think is really helpful for new students to understand kind of visually in their mind if you're a visual learner like I am um, one of the ways that they talk about doing setting context is they talk about it being like building a puzzle when you build a puzzle what is the first thing you do find those those flat out outer pieces and in particular what you really are looking for are those four little major pieces right the four corner pieces right and then from there you build everything else that's what you're doing when you when you're working in doing inductive Bible study in the first week of context setting you are getting the outside framework put in place then all those inner p- pieces are going to come together later but you have to start by setting your boundaries and getting, getting uh, things kind of hemmed in in a way that you see this is the confines in which it all is going to unfold. Okay? So you are going to carefully observe the obvious first. That's the first step, um, meaning author and recipient. <laughs> didn't know how to spell, right? Okay, so that's where we're at. Yay. So that's just a very brief review of what, what you've been doing this week and what the goal is in setting context, because once we're done with this this week, we are not coming back to context setting again. We're going to move on then to in, uh, individual chapter studies, which is called inductive Bible study. Right now, we're setting context. Then we will move to inductive work. Does that make sense to everybody? Okay, so since that's the first place we start, and that is in fact the first place you started in your homework, basically on day two, Kay asked you to go through the first six chapters and look for any clues about the author and the recipient that you could find. So let's start with our author first. tell me what we've learned about Paul. We kind of started this, I think it was Jerry that said, well, show me an example of that. So Jerry, today you're going to get a thorough uh, picture of what uh, list making looks like. So you'll learn a little bit more this week, and I'm more prepared to help you with that now. Okay, so tell me what we see in chapter one about Paul. Okay, so first of all, it is Paul, and he is an apostle. of Jesus Christ. And that is found in chapter 1, verse 1. Okay, so you see how you, you make your list in that manner so that you get your street address. That way, what happens for us is as we're having conversations as students um, together, if you give me the chapter and verse, then I also, as a st- and you all individually, can go back to that chapter and verse and see it for yourself. And you can see that what was stated is is actually the you know what was in the the text. So that's the reason for it. Um, all right. Now, what else do we learn about Paul? Yes. I don't have a scripture verse. but Paul was a very very direct person with his writing. Uh huh. I think
1: anyway. Yes.
0: Completely. And boy, are we going to see that as we move into this book further. So if you did your overview reading, just reading through it all, man, he didn't pull punches, did he? No pulling punches. All right. Yes. Boy, does he. Yeah. You know what, Pat? That is a good point that you're bringing up because that is really true. In, in any text you're at, in, in, no matter which book you're in, often that royal we is, is brought into. And so what you have to do is discern um, from everything that's being said, what does it mean by we? we? Why does he use the word we? What is he including himself in then? Believers. Amongst the believers, amongst the body of, of Christ itself. So the church collective, basically, right? Okay, so we learned that he he understands, or he identifies, or he places himself as a member of that body of Christ, okay? Now, let's go, I'm sorry, As far as Paul, it's risky. Uh, true, yeah, true, okay, all right, so now, yes, Lisa okay, Paul is a servant through whom and he says you he means the Corinthians. believed and that is in three five okay very good excellent nice so what does that tell you then about him is that fo- is that followed up with any more insights later there you go what chapter and verse <laughs> I know it's okay I'm going to wait on you very good 415. So he says, he says, uh, Paul became a spiritual father to the Corinthian church, right? A father, I added the word spiritual in my mouth, I'm sorry, a father (laughs) to the Corinthian So, if he's the one through whom the Corinthians believed, and he calls himself, a, therefore, his, their father, what do we now know about Paul and his relationship with these Corinthian believers? They are his children. As a matter of fact, he says in 4.14, he, re, he talks about admonishing them, but he doesn't want to admonish them in a, out of harshness, right? But he says, rather, he wants to do What? as my beloved children i love that so the corinthians we might could even begin this over here they are paul's beloved children So that'll uh, that'll begin us in ch- uh, concerning those recipients and we'll tap in from time to time on both sides here but let's continue yes This is also uh, uh, what he says about himself so it's important that he sees himself as his identity uh, his his uh, sort of his relationship to these people and the place that he just reported out that he sees himself as their father so from him he's using these words about <laughs> himself Yes that's a good, that's, that's good, and, and in a way it's almost, it's a subtlety of analyzing it and, and, and going a t- tad bit deeper on it. On the surface, he simply says that he is their spiritual father, but what that tells you is he also sees himself as their father. And when he sees himself as their father, if you draw that conclusion, what do you then, uh, or how do you then look at the rest of what he says to them? as a father and sometimes fathers have to correct and instruct their children right yes Go ahead. I marked, uh, 117, that he wasn't sent to to preach okay paul was sent to preach the gospel and that was in 110 17. Okay. 117. Okay. Yes. Now the very interesting thing about that is we aren't ready yet to really dissect that down and and come to an interpretation of why does he say he didn't come to baptize, but that he came to preach? Is baptizing bad? Is that a bad thing, right? We're going to have to wait until next week and the next when we dive into that and tear that apart we're going to break it down we're going to look at all the qualities about what's going on there why he makes the two in it almost seems like he's making one good and one bad but is he Is the going to be the question, right? Well, of course not. I mean, if if you and I understand anything about being in a in a body of Christ and about the subject of baptism, it's a good thing, right? And yet he says, I was not sent to baptize. I was sent to preach the word. And so what we're going to have to do is further break it down and see why did he make that statement in the way he did. What was his point, right? So in a way, what we have to do is further develop what is going on in chapter 1 that he's trying to um, uh, express through that statement. I was just going to say, in in somewhere between 1 and 6, he says, I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks, Diane. (laughs) Uh, One would say, I am a little One would say, I'm a Paul. Another would say, I'm a Christ. Mm -hmm. And Paul said, I didn't come here to baptize. Mm Mm-hmm. Okay. All right. So at least initially for you, you've come to think that that might be what it is. So now what we have to do is dig in and see, is that a sound interpretation? I would venture to say it probably is. However, we definitely don't want to jump there yet because we're not ready, but it's great to see those, you know, initially some of those points. The fact that he mentions all of these different people and he says, uh, one says this, and another says this. And uh, What is his point to saying that about these believers? So what was he working on? Yeah, in chapter 1, what was the problem then that was going on with the church? There was divisions. That's exactly right. So let's put that up here about our... Paul, they were his beloved children... Uh, there was division in the church. Give me that verse, somebody. Thank you. 110. Okay. So there was divisions going on in the church, and Paul was addressing that. So somehow his saying about, well, I didn't come to baptize, but I came to preach, has something to do with him uh, uh, discussing within this, discuss, this uh, subject about their divisions that had arisen among them. Mm-hmm. To mark about the yes, we were. Yes. So, okay, give me some. Let's move over to the recipients, since, I mean, we do what you want to do in this class. So that's how it goes. Okay. Okay, the one of, they are the Church of God in Corinth is in 1-2, and that they are sanctified. It's also in 1-2. And they're sanctified in Christ Jesus, right? Also in verse two, that they are okay, very good. They are saints. And it's by calling. Now, I think this was an interesting point uh, where he says by calling. Did you notice how that compared to Paul, how he introduces himself? What is he? And a, by, he's an apostle by calling. So here we see them being saints by calling. So that kind of brings up another subject just kind of floating in the back of my mind about what? Okay, the subject of being called, right? And how, and how does God play into that relationship with his children of calling us into specific roles, ministries, positions, and quite frankly, into the body of Christ itself? How, how is that all, you know, going to work itself out? Now, whether that will become a major subject in our book here or not, is always a question. And this is the danger in inductive Bible study of rabbit trails. Um, When you come across a thought like that and it, it starts to float around in your head, make a note to yourself about it. And when you do your homework that next week, complete your homework first and then go run on your little rabbit trail to research that a little bit more if you'd like Um, but but probably most of you will be lucky to get through the homework so don't forsake your homework to go on a rabbit trail because i have been guilty of doing that and it and it hurts because then sometimes the rest of the homework is crunched okay so we've now learned about them that they are beloved children his paul's beloved children and what we understand about that statement is that it's because he was their spiritual father that he as a servant to Jesus Christ they had come to believe right believe what right when he was preaching what was he preaching there you go he was teaching the gospel message of Jesus Christ himself and him crucified. We're going to get into that a lot as we move in deeper into the the book. Okay, so you've given us a good foundation on the the, um, recipients that they are the believers. They are the church at Corinth. Now, the fact that they are the church at Corinth, is another thing that you as an inductive student might want to start making note of. Anytime a geographical location is given to you it's a it's a information that can be pursued to give greater insight. Um, Jerry was saying earlier about a little bit about the church and about the historical setting in which all of these things take place. Now we're not quite there yet but when when the time comes she's going to have us do some research and she's going to present to us in our curriculum as we move along. Some insights also, but you may freely run the uh, the gamut on research about Corinth. And the more you know about Corinth, and the more you know about the historical setting of Rome and what was going on, and quite honestly, Paul himself. I, I have a little excerpt here. I might spend some time if we get to it, but Kay may cover this on the video, so I probably... I'm a little nervous about spending too much time on this, but this this particular author goes through, he talks about the founding of the church at Corinth, and he goes back and lays it into the historical setting of the book of Acts, and for those of us who did Acts together, how many of you guys did Acts with me? Yeah, there's a bunch of you, so for you and I, this is going to be a refresher on some of that, but he, she he goes back to chapter 15 and 16 and 17 and 18. Talks about what Paul was doing his missionary journeys. Who was with him? The even the the progression of which he went from this place to this place to this place. And I can still see the map, you know, in my mind from when we did our our act study. So knowing those things are so helpful. Uh, follow up on those things on your own as they come to your mind. Do not hold yourself back. If you have the time, go ahead and do that research because it only adds. Um, a depth of insight that was really beneficial. Yes? This is great. Archaeology study behind it. Uh-huh. It's got some great stuff. Awesome. And does it does it set context then with a historical setting? Okay. Yeah. I think I have that Bible. My dad bought that for me. The archaeology Bible. That's a good one. Okay. All right. Now, um, all right. So, we know then that they are saints by calling in chapter 1, verse 2. What else did you learn? They're nope, they're not very old children. And, and now, there's some subtleties to that statement. Now, what, what does he say about them? Okay, now that's really interesting there, because what is he saying by that, that they have been enriched? And he says, and he, and he lists kind of, and I don't want to Get into that much detail right now but what is how are they enriched with all the right this is with all knowledge and with all uh, speech whoa now that's a subtlety of of or a hint at some things he's going to bring up later when do we see them being endowed with these things what subject matter does that fall under later in the book spiritual gifts Right. So it's telling you, this is very interesting, in a subtle way, they're saying they are saints, and they've been endowed with spiritual gifts. It, he doesn't say it directly, but we, we are going to see that ba- la- later on. Okay, we're going to... Okay, there you go. They are not lacking in any gift. Thank you so much for helping me with that. One seven yeah okay so it's so good if you can get the words directly from the text and give me the scripture reference that's really really helpful because then it's not subjective and it's not drawing a conclusion it's a it's a fact that's listed in there one seven okay so they're not lacking in any spiritual gift or any gift i should say right now any gift um there's another reference. Did you all notice in 126 what they are referred to as? Brethren. It's a, just a title, and I just think it's, it's at what, where we see them called beloved children up here. They're also called the brethren. Whoa, I kn- you know what? That's a good point, Carol. What, what does that tell you about what's going on with this book? And what does that tell you for us? I mean, how, how might that be something that's very um, b- encouraging, but maybe even admonishing to each of us? Yes. Okay. And he's affirming that, isn't he? He's actually making these same. You are, you are, you are. And so he's laying it out very clearly. We're not talking about unsaved people here. We are talking, he is speaking to the church and specifically in the church, he's speaking to those who are sanctified, those who are, have been given get these gifts that are not lacking in gifts. They are sanctified and they are his beloved children children now what makes them a child what does it say over here they had done what believed so these are those who have believed now um within a congregation of a church though do, are are all the people who show up on Sunday morning and sit in a pew those who have believed who are sanctified who are having been given a gift yes Present. Very good, Robert. Okay, so now this helps us greatly because now what we have to do is in our minds, we have to say, okay, so when Paul refers to the church and he's giving both words of encouragement as he is right now, or later when he's instructing and and rebuking, right, what, what must we discern about who he's speaking to based on what we just discussed? that he is speaking to the true believers. That's who this message is to. As a matter of fact, let's go back to verse 2, because it's, I think it's powerful, this one point here, and I'm going to write it in red so you don't miss it. Who is this letter to again? Those who have been sanctified. Go ahead read the whole verse, 1-2. Chapter 1, verse 2. okay okay now can you break that down into two there is the those at corinth who are the those who are sanctified along with who else uh, very interesting did you guys notice that with all who in every place not just at Corinth but all who at in every place call on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ so who do you think that includes yeah so where do we fall in that we're there so you know what that means this is a letter to us right it's not just to the Corinthians and their little problems but this is a letter that was written and intended to be received by all the churches, by all those who have been sanctified, right? I love that. So it is the, um, okay, this. They are the church of God in Corinth, and now I'm going to bring a line down here, and to all, uh let me see how did i write it on my head to all who in every place i'm just going to put call on jesus to shorten my my list for that you guys can write out the whole thing as i did to all to uh to all who in every place call on the name of Jesus, their Lord and ours. So their Lord and ours. Maybe I should add that. Their Lord and ours. I know earlier comedian said why is this an encouragement? Because no matter what we're in covenant, we're in we're with God. When he keeps reminding them I love it you bringing your covenant thoughts back into this and this is the great thing about doing precept studies it is a precept upon a precept and when you've already laid a covenant study down first when you come into conversations like this the subtlety of covenant and how it binds us together and unites us all globally who have faith in him become one in him it is it's actually makes the messages apply always to us doesn't it it doesn't just apply to them at Corinth at that time in history but applies to all who come into faith and are sanctified and therefore that means it applies to me right so what what does that do for me then as I go through these and and start seeing these different points that he's going to bring out what is that going to how is that going to challenge me So how does then his message, how does that really affect me today? Or can it affect me today? Does it affect me today? Should it affect me today? How should I, when I'm reading then what we're looking at the, in these next few weeks, uh, actually months, right, as we're going through this over the next several months, how, I know, <laughs> all the way up till November. <laughs> so as we're doing this, you know, Is this something that's kind of outside of me and I'm just observing it as an onlooker? Or is this something that we should be really meditating on, drawing internally and evaluating even our own personal lives? It absolutely should be. There should be, I mean, hopefully not every one of the points are going to be convicting, <laughs> right? Because we, we're hoping we're not, any one of us, into these deep immoralities, right? Not me, <laughs> right? But certainly what it does do for us is it helps us to, to to realize the fact that the letter intentionally was written, not just to the Corinthians, but to all those who are of the faith of Christ. Uh, in Jesus Christ who are of the church who have been sanctified then therefore everything that we're going to look at really has a practical application for you and I today and that is huge yes You know, I like that, that you bring that point out. It's not just the individual, but then there's also the collective, and that's another finite splitting of the hairs sometimes. Sometimes Paul's statements are to the body of Christ, meaning the the functioning of the body, right? How the church operates. Other times his points are to the individual, and he wants to Penetrate the heart and, and convict it, the individual to, to get in line with God's principles and truths, whatever they are, right? All right, good. All right, any other things? Were there any kind of um, keywords that you picked up and as you were going through this, when you did your list on Paul, that began to show you maybe what Paul's purpose was in writing this letter? Oh, whoops. Okay. So Paul is responding to, okay, so let's put this on here. Paul responds to, now give me the exact words from our text. I can look it up on mine here. It's in Okay, so it's a re- say that again, the report. Um, I've been informed concerning by Chloe's people that there are corals on them. Okay, so and that is in chapter. 111. Thank you. So right away uh, right away at the very beginning we get the first clue as to what his purpose is in this particular book. He says, "I am writing, I'm responding," uh, right I mean that's the implication there so that part right there is kind of you kind of have to add that in order to make it make sense. But it's inform- he had received information from Chloe's people. Now, we don't know who Chloe is yet, and, and I'm hoping she will take us to do a little research on that. But what does that tell you? Regardless if you know who Chloe is or who you think Chloe might be, what does that tell you at this point? Yeah. It how, you know, my question is always, you know, a person, who is Paul in relationship to all the churches for that matter, right? And if they're writing to Paul, what is that, what information does that give you about Paul and his relationship with these different groups? He's writing to Corinth, he considers himself a, fa- a spiritual father to them, that he had brought them the, uh, the gospel and they had believed through him. Now he's saying an Another group, Chloe's people, are sending reports to him or, or coming to him with reports about them. I see information on that, in that statement about who Paul is, right? And I also see information in that statement about what's going on. And how bad does it have to be before somebody is going to go to someone like Paul and give a report? It has to you know how how many of you have ever written a letter to a a church leader of some sort about an issue that you see or a problem that you've seen right some of you have but i would venture to say not a lot of us have right because why by the pastor seen as a right right or or being the looked at that we're the problem, right? That we're just stirring up trouble or that we're being divisive in some manner, right? Right. Right. And it could be that they didn't even write. It may be that they actually went to him. They may have traveled to wherever he is, right? So, I mean, to me that implies that things had gotten bad enough long enough that now somebody says we have got to do something about this. Now, why would that be a problem? If cl- whoever whatever this information is that when we and we do see what it is in a minute here, but the information from Chloe's people, why If it's bad, why would that be a problem that needs to be addressed? Okay. Very good. It hinders the work. Others are watching. And how many of you guys know someone who has said, um, well, that's what Christianity is like. I don't want anything to have to do with it, right? So the testimony of Jesus Christ himself, and who he is, and the church. What is this? Does This this kind of ventures back a little bit into our Kings and Prophets study, right? What was going on with Israel when they had been put on the land, and they were called God's people, they were to be a shining light to the nations, and then what did they go about doing? Profaning his holy name. And so, would you say that from that thought that this is an example also of the same thing, uh, that somehow these people were profaning God's holy name, and therefore Chloe's people went to Paul and said, this is what's going on, Paul. So when Paul writes, how do you see his approach with them? Well, we've just talked about he opens in a very exhorting way in his letter, right? He begins by stroking, you know, giving them a hug and saying, you know, I am... this is what I know about you, so don't get me wrong, right? He doesn't say that part, that's Katie. But, you know, hey, I'm telling you, I understand you're a Christian, but, right, there's a problem here. Now, Yes, yeah, it's now I mean this, that each one of you is saying this. I love that. Now I mean this. That's funny. I didn't quite catch that before, Linda. That was good. It's kind of like I'm coming up there, you know. <laughs> yeah, I mean this. All right. All right, so Paul, the, one of the things that we see about the author is that Paul is responding to information from Chloe's people. So that's one point that we are now seeing in chapter 1 as he opens. concerning things you wrote about. That's in chapter 7, verse 1. Very good. So that covers uh, two basic points that, I mean, in a nutshell, what we see then, this book, as far as the, the segment divisions of what have been shown to us thus far, is that He begins this letter in chapters 1 through 6 addressing things that he had heard about, information that he had received about them, and they were problematic information right it was a problem and so he was going to address that and then secondly we see starting in chapter 7 verse 1 he says now concerning the things that you had questions about those things that you wrote to me about so then he goes about answering questions that they have it's very interesting is how you see all those questions you know line themselves um out um Yes, again jealousy and strife in chapter three. So if jealousy and strife is talked about in one and you still are seeing it in three also, what is that a clue for you and I as inductive students? That's a problem and it's it's carried on from chapter one, it's being yet conversed about in two, now we're seeing it in three, and is it going to continue on beyond that? You have to take an observation and did it. Yes, so what does that tell you about Chapter one, two, three, and four? What is your major subject in those four chapters? The quarrels and divisions among them? You've got your very first segment division. Woohoo, good job, Carol nice work let's Let's put that on here. First segment division is going to be one to four, and it's going to be quarrels or divisions. All right, so that takes us down to chapter four. Let's go back, let's stop for a second then, and let's start doing some work on these chapters then. Let's look at chapter one on the whole and tell me what you see going on in that particular chapter. If it's about divisions among them, here's the, cl- here's the thing about inductive study. Once you identify, for instance, a segment division, now you know in that segment division, all four chapters are addressing the, the subject of their divisions among them, Right. In chapter one, how does he address it? In chapter two, how does he address it? In chapter three, how does he address it? In chapter four, how does he address it? All four of your chapter titles should in some way answer to or address a, a aspect of the subject of divisions, correct? If you're going to title these well and to get your flow of thought. So concerning the subject of divisions in chapter one, what was his... Emphasis at the conclusion of it. What was? What did you title chapter one? Yeah, and actually that makes what, what verse was that again? One ten. So I'm actually going to put that in the segment division as a key. Uh, verse possibly to kind of hang your hat on so that you see from there from that statement right there in 110 segment divisions among them is addressed and the segment is chapters one through four what's going on in chapter one what is he um Diane you said earlier that one of the things that they brought up was I am of Cephas and I am of Paul and I am of right so what is the contrast to that? If if Paul is saying that's what's going on and that's your divisions, you guys are each aligning yourself with what? There you go. Boast in the Lord, or only boast in the Lord. Give me a. a do you see a verse anywhere in there that you want to pull a, a title out of? All right. Let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. Now, at some point, we are going to probably, not, I'm going to put on here verse 31 right there for you. At some point, Just remember, everything we're doing right now is like a rough draft of titlings, right? So, like, that's really lengthy. At some point, you're going to want to hone that down and simplify it. But for today's homework, for today's purpose, you're just trying to kind of look at the once-over, a quick brush-through, because once you dive into chapter one and actually do your inductive work and tear it apart, you may actually want to align it one way or another more succinctly or more, more precision in your mark of what, how you want to title it. The other thing is when you make your titles the, the shorter, the better, because you're going to remember them better, right? And what you want out of this is when you title a chapter, is you want that title to basically convey to you the big picture of what's being said in there, right? So that when you go back at any other time, and you look through your list, you go, oh yeah, I remember, that's where they were saying, I'm of Paul, I'm of Cephas, I'm of, right? So that's what you're wanting to do. So chapter one, they have divisions among them, and he's refocusing them and saying, I don't want there to be divisions among you. I want you to to be united then where? That you're all all of the Lord, right? All right, very good. We will dig that out more thoroughly. This is just the brush through for right now. Okay, chapter 2, tell me what you saw there. Concerning divisions now in chapter 2, very good okay so interesting because he's saying about them do not put your faith in the wisdom of men but on the power of god or on the wisdom and the power of god can you see how this was it if you put your faith on the wisdom of men interesting is the backdrop to the city of corinth on this right what is it that the Corinthians love and, and admire uh, so much in that era in history in particular? Wisdom. And we're going to do some research on that, hopefully, in the next week or two, or you'll do it on your own. I'm not sure if Kay's got it in the curriculum or not, but we'll see as it comes along. But if not, you all do a little bit of looking on that. I mean, if you have done... How many of you have traveled and been to Corinth? Okay. So how strong is the subject of wisdom in, really in Greece for that matter? What about Athens and Mars Hill where Paul went? Oh yeah. So it's very interesting that what he says here in chapter two then is, I want you to not put your your faith and your hope on wisdom of men, but rather... Right, because And so in, in doing so, if you're putting it on the wisdom of men, then you're back to chapter 1. I'm of Cephas, and I'm of Apollo, and I'm of Paul. And so you've got division. And so to, to squash the division, he's saying, no. What? Put your faith on. Okay, so let's put that one up. Let your faith rest on. Uh-huh your faith. Uh, I'm just going to put rest on God because I don't have room to put the whole thing on there. But it could say in verse five, it says rest on the on the power of God. But all the verses before that also imply the wisdom of God. So that's the contrast wisdom of men or wisdom of God, which one are you actually saved through? Are you saved through man's wisdom or through God's wisdom? All right, so that's chapter two. You guys are doing really good. Chapter three. <laughs> so again, in, in many ways, it's it's actually just a, a, a complement to what we just looked at then, right? In chapter two, where he says basically, don't boast in, don't let your faith rest in, in, uh, in, the, in men, but uh, in chapter 3, he says, don't, don't boast in men more. Before, he says, no, I want you to, basically, I want you to boast in God, right? All right, so let's put on here, um, do not boast in men. 21. Verse 21 covers that. Is there another verse that you had on that one? No, okay, all right. Do not put your faith in, in the wisdom of men, but boast in God. Do not walk as... In chapter 3, what is the one of the major subjects in chapter 3 that's so interesting to us? How does he refer to them when he opens chapter 3? And does he does he imply that maybe they should have at this point... Pushed through beyond that, how many of us know people in our in in the Christian faith and even our own selves for that matter, that maybe we came into faith many many years ago and we sat for years basically as babies, not really knowing the Word of God that well, because we we're not diligent to study it right, and so so what is the what is the um, antidote? to remaining infants, maturing. And how do you go about maturing according to what Paul is showing us? Okay. There you go. Wisdom, which is from God. And where do you get wisdom from God? In his word. So in other words, we're back to doing what we are doing. Thank you. Thank you, all of you. You are doing already exactly what he says, so at least this one chapter won't apply to us. However, (laughs) are there still applications? Of course. What it's teaching us is that infancy in any area of our life in our faith walk with God is probably due to a lack of instruction from God about that subject. We have not sat truly and earnestly Um, before the throne of God and at the feet of Christ and opening his word and diligently studying to to come to understanding and knowledge about what God thinks on that. uh, uh, Yes, there you go. That's a great way to say that, Robert. So see, there's the practical teacher. It's the food and the exercise first, but you have to get your food first. So you can't start with the exercise. How would you say that in the body of Christ that more often we begin with exercise and we forget the food as if with that analogy being put in place and And just not doing that's true too yeah so you know and of course a Pharisee is outside of faith. But within the church, are there some who know the Lord, have a true love for God, and yet the first thing they do is dive into serving God, work, doing works for God, and they fail to first train themselves up in the knowledge. Right. Exactly. Well, that's you just. No, it isn't anything new. Isn't it? Isn't it amazing. Ecclesiastes. Nothing new under heaven. Right. Now, not even that's new, right? (laughs) Okay, okay. So chapter 3 is about these infants, that they have remained infants, um, and he draws them back to see that actually we are God's fellow workers in verse 9. For we are God's fellow workers, you are God's field, God's building. In other other words, he says it's not about men. It's about us and our relationship with God and, and what our place is. In, a, in the body of Christ. As God's saints, as those sanctified, what is our responsibility? Well, he calls us fellow workers, right? Your concept about who you are as a Christian is y- you should view yourself as a fellow worker alongside of. Therefore, what, ha- what, what does that do for the playing field of Christianity in the church? Hmm? Yeah, it levels the playing field, doesn't it? it? It makes it makes you have a better perspective of, although we have different giftings and different assignments, and we have different personalities in different places, right? And we're going to cover this in chapter 12, where he says, I've gifted you, and I've also gifted, within the gifting even, I've given diversities of, of outcomes and of works in it. But I want you to understand that you all are in Christ, in God's eyes, you are God's worker. And that makes you with one another a fellow worker. And the concept of fellow worker, what does that kind of invoke for us? Work? <laughs> I love that. So is it work? I'm going, No, I, I focused on the fellow. <laughs> Say it again. Right. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. It puts us all on the same team working together rather than there being divisions and jealousies and um, uh, basically challenging one another or some thinking they're superior over others. Instead, it brings us all down to an equality place, right? That we're all together in this. True, but the, the there can still be okay. Mm-hmm. I laid a foundation. That's true. That's true. Okay. You did, you did. No, that's all right. It's it's good. It's good. Okay. So now, then let's go on to chapter four. We're looking at divisions among them, and how does chapter 4 address that? Actually, chapter 4 does a better job, Susan, of making the point that I just made, right? You're right. We get there. (laughs) Okay, chapter 4, what does he say? How does he open chapter 4? Yeah, isn't that interesting? Let man regard us in this manner as servants of Christ and stewards of the mystery of God. And then verse six, he says, now these things, brethren, I have figuratively applied to myself and Apollos for your sakes, so that in us, you may not, you may learn not to exceed what is written so that none of you will become what? Arrogant in behalf of one against another. So this actually does a better job of saying what I just said. Um, he he wants them to understand their position uh, within the body of Christ, that we are in this together, but we are all fellow workers, that, that Paul is not exalted, Apollos is not exalted, Cephas is not exalted, but who is exalted? Christ. And you and I are all fellow workers, right? And so he gives them two titles, servants and stewards. Interesting, I can't wait to do word studies on that to really expound our, our insight on what that really is speaking about. Okay, so how would you title then chapter 4? What do you see going in there regarding bringing them into some kind of a place of unity rather than division? Okay. Be servants of Christ. Okay. Yeah. Did you see verse 7? He says, uh, who regards you as superior? (laughs) Right? I liked that. Exactly. Okay. Okay. In the end, after he, first of all, first of all, what he does is he brings them down off their high horse. And then he says, now I want you to imitate me because, okay. So then that takes us back to verse 1. If you're going to imitate Paul, what does Paul say he wants us to regard ourselves as? Servants and stewards. So let's do this. Um, we are all, uh, sir. I'm just going to put servants and stewards. Um, and that's verse 1. Right, in chapter four, one we are all servants and stewards, which brings us d- down to a place of equality. Now, how, how does that address divisions among them? Does it address that subject? Yeah, it does, doesn't it? So at this point now, remember, these are tentative. You can change them. There is nothing golden about what we've written on paper today. It just gives us a place to start. To help, because I think one of the hardest things for precept students to learn in, in this method of study is how to find your segment division, what that made, that theme is of the segment, and get your verses to relate to it in each time ta- in each point. And it takes some time to develop that. And the other thing is sometimes as you're doing it, you can almost get so wrapped around the system of it that you that you actually start. L- St- you know paying attention to really what's going on in the chapter. So w- we will you know refine these as we go on later but that gives you a place to start from right? Okay now what then happens in chapter 5 and 6? There's the subject of immorality in Ver in Chapter Five, and what's in Chapter Six? Okay, did you see a tie anything that ties together Chapter Five with Chapter Six? Very good. way to go, Lisa. Nice job! You know what? We were not asked to mark keywords, but if you're looking at this and you're seeing kind of a a, um, a a connection between one to the other, otherwise it's very disjointed. What you see is, oh, they're they're talking about this subject here, and now they're talking about this subject here, and what does one have to do with the other? And it doesn't seem to flow. But when you start marking your keywords or paying attention, you note that there are keywords that connect those two chapters together. What you see is he's talking about the subject of judging. In both of them and in the first one he talks about judging from one perspective and in the second one he talks about judging in us in another so what does he say in chapter 5 about judging what are they supposed to be doing what was the problem in five there you go does that remind you of anything for those of you who have done revelation with me more than once um, does that remind you of any of the letters to the churches? You have immoralities among you and you're not. Who was that? I don't, I don't mean the church, but what was the problem there? Jezebel, and you are not judging her, right? And he says at the conclusion of it, when he says to the overcomers, I will make you judges, right? That's going to be one of the uh, the rewards to overcomers. So Obviously, being a judge is actually, in this context, good or bad. It's good. How many of you have been taught a sermon that's good to go around judging? Have you ever heard the, the unsaved world talk about the subject of judging others? Ha. Hot. Yes. Oh, my goodness. I could give you stories from my own family that i am so judgmental interesting it, and when you think of that it does sound harsh and it sounds real um almost, you can you can almost go into a, a false sense of guilt if you aren't if you're not you know mature enough to say okay what what is it that has just occurred that causes them to feel that i'm being judgmental right are we called to ever Bring judgment within our uh, household of faith. Is that who he was addressing here? Is he saying it's someone inside or outside of the church? Inside the church, and then later he retitles him. What does he call him? I think it wasn't here. He, yeah, he eventually is called the, a wicked man. But he calls. Does it this is where he calls him a so-called? 11. Thank you. Okay. Um, oh, that's why I couldn't find it. I'm in the wrong chapter. <laughs> there it is. I had it marked. Okay. In 11, but actually I wrote to you not to associate with any so-called brother if he is an immoral person. So when it ta- comes to the household of faith, we are to observe the behavior then of the household of faith and take note when there's something that's going on. And in this case, how bad was it? Yeah. It was so bad that even the the unbelievers would look at this and be horrified, right? Uh, and there's some great history recorded about C- Corinth and uh, the idea of being a Corinthian, what that phrase came to mean because of this kind of a subject here, where the immoralities were so perverse and so overt And yet they were occurring where? In the church, not outside the church, in the church. So in that case, what are we being told or demonstrated right now at this point about judging in the church? Should we? Yes. When you see overt sin, and again, we're back to why. What is that? Why are we to judge? There you go because if you don't you're allowing your church to have a wrong reputation and a wrong impression and the world is watching right and so they're seeing you blaspheme god's holy name through behavior and you're not judging it and you're not correcting it you're condoning right and this this is not what god calls us to so in chapter five then how would you title chapter five oh let's get a title for our judging thing here let's see uh, segment division how do you want to title your segment division in five and six if we thanks to lisa we know that there is a key key repeated word that flows from chapter five into chapter six and in both cases it's the word of judging judging and judgment, right? And everything in there conveys back to that subject. It shows you how you should and why you should and, and um, why you should not, right? It, you have to do this. So h- how would you phrase that as far as giving it a segment title? If you're going to title a segment of it, obviously you can't talk about immoralities because that's only in chapter 5. In chapter 6, it's a different subject. So you have to come higher and say it's about judgment, but what concerning judgment, what is the emphasis? Who's the emphasis to? The church. So it's the responsibility to judge, isn't it? This subject in these two chapters is about our responsibility as a church to collectively watch over the church and to make judgment when needed. Right. And in this chapter, this judgment is about watching for people who are so-called believers in your midst, but yet they're living in overt sin. And what they're doing then is profaning God's holy name by you allowing them and condoning them. So he's saying, so it's, you could say, um, duty to make judgments or the believer's responsibility to judge to make judgments how do you want to say it okay judgment in the church I like that see how easy that was (laughs) it's our responsibility to make judgment in the church yes say it again Yes, exactly. And the and the, un, the leaven, keep the leaven out. You're, you are unleavened bread. He speaks of that earlier. Okay. All right. So now that's in five. We see then the title for that chapter would be what? Um, okay. Well, we've got judgment in the church for a theme. So now how does chapter 5 relate to this? What is the major emphasis in 5? And it can have the word immorality in it because the the big thing is on immorality, right? Okay, judge immorality. Do you have a verse for that? Okay, take a look at verse 2. What do you see there? you have become arrogant and have not mourned instead, so that the one who had done this deed would be what? Removed from your midst. So you could say remove immorality from your midst. That might be one suggestion. There you go. And first 13 is probably the easiest one. It's already spelled out for you. Remove the wicked man's. And I would almost want to combine verse 2 into it from your midst, because it's talking about from within the church. Obviously, and as a matter of fact, Paul does address it in this chapter. He says, I wrote to you before about associating with the immoral, and I'm not speaking about the immoral of the world, for if you had done that, I'd have to take you out of the world, right? But he's saying, I'm speaking about those who are in the church who are claiming to be Christians, who are walking among you, and yet are not living the life. Right? Now how that gets handled is very can be very detailed and there's a lot of instructions on how to rebuke and how to correct, how to to train someone up, how to even approach them to to do the correcting. There's all these things that once you get into that chapter that we're going to have to look at. But it is exciting just to see from the get-go that what he's saying is we're not to be judgmental about people outside the church. If they're sinning, they're sinning. And the fact that they're sinners should not shock you, right? It doesn't mean, though, however, that you can't say, well, that's, God does not approve of that. That is wrong in God's sight. However, in the church is where we most surely should be guarded on that. And sadly, would you say that we do a good job of that? As a matter of fact, in some churches, we are so big that we don't get into the private lives of people. We often don't even know these things are going on, do we? Okay, so, chapter five remove the wicked man. The church, That's right. Good question. Well, see, this is what we're going to have to study out on when we get into this deeper, but it's a really good question. Do, do you personally at this moment think that this is an address only to the leaders? It's only the leader's responsibility to confront people who are living in overt uh, immoralities? What if I personally know about someone, but my pastor doesn't? Very. Well, Oh, Lisa, you're, you are jumping so far ahead, and it's awesome that you made that collect connection already. Remember, earlier we saw actually an example of this. Chloe's people went to Paul to say, look, there's a problem in this church. Who are they calling to account? The outside world or the church? The church. Is this a correct thing for them to have done? Yes. Very good. Nice work, Lisa. Okay, all right, remove the wicked man. I'm going to put on here, from your midst. From among among yourselves would work. Okay, 13. So I had it in, uh, let me see here. Verse 2 and verse 13. Okay, 2 and 13. So it's kind of, I'm combining two together, and I may... I may shorten it at some point, but, but the reason I put that from your midst on there is to clarify to myself when I look at that, that it's talking about the church, not your midst, you know, not in the world, but from within the church. Since the letter is being addressed to the church and to the members of the church, this message is to the church that they should remove the wicked men from their midst, right? Or from among them. Okay. Very good, five, we're moving on to six, and we are making great time, you guys. Okay, chapter six. Again, the subject is judgment. Now that you know that, if you have not marked the word judge or judgment, you might wanna just put a pencil mark around it real quick so that you know to go back in and mark that, and then what you're gonna see when you mark judging and judge, you're gonna see the connection, how those two chapters connect together through that one subject that flows. And then in chapter six, you do see the subject of judgments, but it's from a totally different perspective this time, right? What's going on in chapter six? Okay. Very interesting. The church is going to the unbelieving world to have them settle disputes that are going on in, in the church or amongst believers, between believers. Now, how does Paul respond to that? Really? Is there not someone among you who can do this? I I like the word shame he brings up. This This is to your shame. So he makes it very clear. This should not be happening, right? Okay. Um, So we're going to, I'm going to enjoy this one a lot, it's going to talk about the world to come and the role and responsibility of saints. And what is the relationship then be, when he brings up, will saints not judge the world to come? Will they not judge angels? Will they not, right? So he's making a comparison between what they're doing right now as, at the, in the body of Christ in this life. And he's saying, you're going to down here, oh, this way for you guys, down here, he says, well, you are going to be judges of the angels and of the world to come, right? The kingdom to come. So what are you to be, supposed to be doing over here in the present? Practicing that judgment. So what you're doing now is a, is a foreshadow. It's is a training ground. It's a It's a preparation for, right? And judgment is to be done now. And and then both. And if, in fact, you're going to not only judge the in the world to come, in the kingdom to come, but you're literally going to be judging angels, how much more, it doesn't say this in there, these are Katie's words, how much more do you have authority to judge then in this present world between two Christians who are having a dispute? That should be easy-peasy stuff, right? All right, so... We see then in 1 Corinthians 6 that we will judge angels in 1 to 8, and then in 9 to 11, we will also inherit the kingdom of God, which is where we're heading. What else do you see in there? Is there any other points that you want to bring out from chapter 6? By this time, you started pooping out on it, I bet. started getting tired a little bit. What do you see in six? Mhm-hmm Okay, that's kind of a conclusion more than an like an instruction. Uh, on your theme, see, not all things are pro- not all things, uh judgment. I'm not sure. I'm trying to come up with a good title that fits addressing judgment in the church. Um, as church members, as believers, we are to make judgments, right? So in this case, what, are, what kind of judgments are we supposed to take care of in chapter 6? There you go. We are to, you are to judge matters basically between the saints. Now is there a good verse for that? Can someone, I didn't get my verse on here, sorry. Decide between his brethren. There you go, perfect. Uh, believers are to decide between the brethren, verse 5. Okay, so that's in verse 5. That's an excellent title. Now can you see how 5 and 6 actually fit together and it's a flow of thought. They're not disjointed. They don't have nothing to do with one and the other. They actually have a commonality and that is the subject of your responsibility as the body of Christ to make judgments. Um, I love the way Leviticus talks about Uh, when God was establishing his nation there, he always talked about them being able to discern the, the clean from the unclean, that this was a responsibility that they had to understand the difference between evil and good, and that they had to make these judgments daily in their life as a daily practice. So that, why? What does daily practice do for you? It becomes a habit, Don. You are you got it. High five! Finally, from the back row, we hear the best answer all day. You become an expert at it if you practice it. It becomes a natural thing to you. By the way, as a matter of fact, I would venture to say that the older you get, the more often people are going to be saying of you, "You are judgmental." Why? Because you learn have learned by a practice on a daily basis that the that the difference between what's good and what's evil between what's clean and what's unclean what pleases God and what doesn't please God and every time you make a decision I'll do this or I won't do this is an is an exercise of this making judgments and and the umbrella over you is God himself and what's within you is the word of God itself and and through those two things you you come to make sound judgment Okay. Yes, it is. I love. I, li- I love that you said it that way because I do think that often people receive judgment as critical and as as hurtful rather than as love. And the analogy I've used before in here is there's an old commercial years back when it was against against the drugs, you know, trying to train kids to, to not take drugs. And there's a, in my mind, I remember there's a girl standing on the railroad track. And the or, and her back is to the train, and the train is coming her way, and her friend is standing off in the distance looking at her, and she's basically kind of biting her nails and looking at her friend, and the the essence of the conversation is, but if I tell her, she won't like me. She'll be offended. I'll hurt her feelings, right? She'll think I'm trying to be judgmental or that I'm trying to boss her around and run her life, and so what are you going to do? Are you going to stand there and say, well, I can't judge because I might hurt her feelings? Or are you going to say, get off the tracks? You're about to get run over, right? In the Christian life, it's basically the same thing. We do have responsibility to judge. It's a requirement because it it keeps the church both purified and healthy. It gives us strength. It gives us power and and it it is truly the exercise of what God's greatest desire for us is that that we walk in holiness before Him. Yes. Yes. Your blood is on there your there you go. Ezekiel chapter three, you know, and that's not just to the prophet, although it's one of the gifts and definitely it's the higher calling in the prophet is that they must tell whether they want, whether the people who want to hear it or not, but your responsibility is to tell them. And if you don't and they, and they, uh, die in their sins, the blood of that sin of you not speaking the truth is on you. Their sins aren't on you, but your own sin of refusing to speak. And so speaking up, sometimes people don't like it, particularly if people don't understand spiritual giftings. When you have a prophet in your midst, or also teachers, um, even people with gifts of exhortation often will speak the truth. They try to speak it in love, but often it's not received that way. We have to learn as the body of Christ to understand this is part of who we're supposed to be with one another and that we should be able to receive the corrections and the rebukes and the instructions. And in this one case, too, the idea of going before the world, the the old adage my mom taught me was, you do not air your dirty laundry. If there's a dispute between two Christians, it should be handled in-house and privately, right? Not out there where the the unsaved world can observe it and then say, see, that's how those Christians are. Look, they can't even get along with each other. Where's their love? Right? Very, these are going to be great sub, subjects of conversation as we go. Okay, now we've got about 20 minutes, and what we want to do with the last part of this, um, we've kind of covered everything, I think, pretty well there. Um, let's just go through and look at segment the rest of these segment divisions she did not ask you to title the rest of those seven eight nine all the way through 16. she did not ask you to do that i did suggest in last week's uh lesson time that it would be good to pencil in those those titles for yourself as you went through and the reason i i said that is because i don't know how you can come up with segment divisions if you haven't at least looked closely enough to, to give some kind of a title. That's just my view on that. Okay, so let's, but let's go back now, and starting in chapter 7, we have, a, we have a, a, another division in 7. And what is the subject in chapter 7? Yeah. Marriage. Marriage and what? Or singleness marriage. marriage and singleness. And everything that relates to that, uh, singleness. Okay, marriage and singleness. That's right. Re- all these relationships, and I can tell you that this is a a um, uh, an under taught subject probably in the church. How to handle divorce and people who are divorced, and we and boy, we have a lot of them. And many of you may be them. And uh, it's it's. It's a delicate thing, but I can tell you after having looked just briefly at chapter 7 this week, God has it laid in such a way that it is really expressed in love. The way it's handled is very loving. And so we're going to take a deeper look on that later. So, marriage and singleness is going to be handled in chapter 7. Then we get to chapter 8. And how long does that, what is the subject that pops up in 8? Okay, something about idols, right? Idols and idolatry are start, begin in chapter eight. What, what do you see in nine? Okay, talking about the Lord's Supper. And then in 10, flee from idolatry. So what does that tell you about eight, nine, and 10? There's another segment, correct? And what is our, our major subject in all three of those? Idolatry and idol worship, right? Eight, nine, and ten. So we're going to put eight to ten is idols and idolatry. Now, um, the, fa- the very fact that this subject has come up, in this book, and he spends three chapters on it. What does that tell you about Corinth, the historical setting of Corinth? I I really don't have a place to put it. But anyway, okay, say it again. Exactly. If he's going to spend three whole chapters on this subject of how to understand and how to relate to it. Now, I mean, and these were really true, truly practical problems for them. You know, what do I do if my friend who's an idol worshiper invites me to a meal and I know the food that he is prepared was offered to an idol? How do I handle that? And so on the one hand, Paul explains the reality of their position and their Um, their power basically over all of that, and yet he also says, but, what? But how should you handle that? Yeah, and why not? Because what is your reason for not wanting to do that? their conscience more so than your own, right? Because in, in, in chapter 8, he says, don't be a stumbling block to the weak. They may not have the same knowledge that you have, right? In 7, um, oh yeah, in 8, he says, don't be a stumbling block. So then in 9, he says, also concerning the idols, what does he not want us to do? Look at 12. There you go. The bottom, the bottom line in this subject about idolatry is you do not want to cause a hindrance to the gospel. So if eating the meal actually will help you win them over and bring them into faith, then do it because you are free. And he explains that in the previous chapter. Then he goes on to say, however, if eating becomes a stumbling block, then don't do it um, I mean, I, I, the subject that always comes to my mind, being the good Southern Baptist that I was raised to be, is, you know, alcohol. Do you drink or do you not drink? And when I was growing up, a lot of it was that you cannot drink, it's a big sin. Well, I come to find out in my maturing in the word that there's nothing wrong with having a drink. What it is, though, is will it be a stumbling block to someone else, right? And so in that case, now you have to be careful in your, with, what environment you're in and who you're with and so forth, right? Now, for me personally, I I don't drink at all. Part of it it was a conviction earlier in my life, but part of it is I just, I get sick when I dr- drink anything, and I'm allergic, I think, to all of it, and God probably did that on purpose, because it, it purifies your faith walk before others, and you can't be a stumbling block if you're not doing things that may offend some, and in my Baptist circles that I used to run in so much, which I don't so much now, but it was, would have been a stumbling stone. If I said in my liberty, well, there's nothing wrong with it, but, and I have my glass of wine, and they're watching me, thinking I'm a spiritual leader in their eyes. Now they're watching me do something that I shouldn't. I, ha- I have other stories on that one. I've, ha- I've had so many things happen in my life regarding the idea of people viewing you one way, and then you find out that some of the things you're doing is a stumbling stone. Uh, sometimes you can just train them and then it won't be a problem. But other times you have to abstain in order to not offend, for that you not cause a hindrance to the gospel. Okay? Um, All right, so now after Idols and Idolatry in 8, 9, and 10, so you're going to title each of your chapters in such a way that it relates to that subject about Idols and Idolatry, correct? Then go to 11, and what's going on in 11? This one's really good. There's one is the subject about head coverings, and the ones that are, it's talking about women then, right? Does he actually give them a, um, an adverb to, 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 when he speaks about them? How does he call these women at the end of it in verse 16? Do not be contentious. So it seems to me like he's talking about head coverings, but the underlying issue is about being contentious. Women who are just, and so we need to know what that word contentious is probably in order to better examine those first verses in that chapter, right? Um, And then after that comes a a new subject, and what is that subject? The Lord's Supper. And in taking of the Lord's Supper, what's going on? Yeah, okay, so they're taking it in an unworthy manner, right, is what he says at the end of it. So we see two things, contentiousness and an unworthy manner. Where are both of these things taking place, and what is it causing a problem for? In the church, congregation, when the church comes together to worship, in the congregational gatherings, there is this, these problems, right, that are going on, this discord, and so that is the issue in chapter 11, right? There's two subjects mission. It actually could be two chapters, almost. And each chapter could have their own title that relates to the subject of, of uh, uh, church gatherings. Now, how would you like to title that segment division? I'm going to have to put it over here. Um, it's going to be 11. Okay. Okay. So how is 11 going to be titled as far as... It's, it's a single chapter and it's, one, and it's one subject. So there's not more chapters that go along with that one. It's, it's a little tougher because of it's basically two subjects. But he says in verse 33, what? When you come together... Right? You do it. Yeah, you come together, you wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let them eat at home so that you will not come together for judgment. Very interesting. So when you come together, it has to do with um, harmony and correctness is that there not be disorder in the assembling time. In the assembling time they were coming together for their church services and they were, they, were ca- they were literally causing fights among themselves more divisions more strife more jealousy more problems and he, in this chapter he addresses two subjects one has to do with these this group of women who were contentious and it's not about about exactly what they did but but it's more about the systemic thing which is they were contentious and so he addresses contention in the church and what it does because he actually handles the other side of it too with the men he says about women they they need to have their head covered but what about a man if not not to have his head covered because this is shameful right so we're gonna have to parse all that out in our study time to see why is it and what was the point to this conversation but the bottom line is he's saying in your gatherings there's contentiousness going on and you are not to have that when you come together. We are to come together in the, in the body of Christ collectively in harmony, in unity. It actually almost goes back to chapter 1 where he speaks about, um, let me see if I can find that verse real quick. He says in 1, um, that you come together that you be made complete in the same mind and in the same judgment. In chapter 1 verse 10, right? be of the same mind and the same judgment. So in this point here in chapter 11, they're not of one mind nor are in one judgment on things. Yes. Okay, so holding firm to the traditions. Okay, let's do this. Uh, Let's try this. Holding firm to church traditions, yeah. And we may want to change that later to make it better. I had put on mine disorder in church gatherings, um, and that works too. It could be there's, and the two disorders were one, contingent women, the other was how they were partaking of the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner, and he's trying to correct those two things. Pat. Yeah, I like that. I'm going to add that on there for unity. So it's holding firm to tr- church traditions for unity. The goal is unity, right? That they be of one mind and one spirit and one accord, with one judgment and one and one uh, common goal. And actually, who was it that brought up covenant earlier? Was it you, Terry? It kind of goes back to the idea of, again, who are we as a church body? We are one in covenant with Christ. And so as as being one, we are to strive for oneness rather than contentiousness, which caused division, rather than partaking of the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner, which was also causing division. Okay. Okay. So 11, now we're going to go 12 to 14. What is there? That was an easy one. All is all about spiritual gifts. I love that. Okay. I can't wait to cover that one. What about 15? What's that major subject there? Resurrection. So it's interesting. It's about resurrection. Now, we are going to have to maybe uh, make it a little more clear. But what is it that seems to be the problem for them in 15? Say it again. Yeah. So there was some false teaching out there about the resurrection right? Who gets resurrected, maybe when they get resurrected, or for that matter, if they got resurrected. 1 Corinthians 15 is that resurrection chapter that teaches us so much about resurrection and what we have to look forward to. So apparently he's correcting a problem for them, a misunderstanding or a bad teaching that's out there about the resurrection. So it's, um, I did it this way, I put assurance of resurrection. Now, the reason I I did that because in verse 58 he says your toil is not in vain. Christ the first fruits is raised. So all this work that you're doing as ser- servants and stewards of God is not in vain. That's not a toil that's in vain because Jesus Christ in fact has been raised so he corrects their understanding. He gives them an assurance of resurrection, and he exhorts them then to continue in the faith walk for that day. All right, last one, chapter 16 then is? What is it? Chapter, chapter 16 is what subject? honor and serve. Okay, that's pretty good. Honor and serve the Lord, because how is it demonstrated in that chapter? I like that. I didn't have that title, but I really like that. Okay, and what verse was that? Oh, okay. But you came up with it all on your own boy howdy Don you're becoming a star I'm telling you uh, you know really what you see in there do you do, I don't know if you notice it or not but it's in it's about serving Christ and then he says in verse 14 do all in love all that you do whatever you do do it hardly as unto the Lord right so in verse 14 might be a good uh, chapter title possibly once you get to that place but the subject about it is has to do with honoring and serving the Lord. And he goes through in his closing statements, and he gives a rendition of all kinds of things, that things that have to do with giving and serving and also about relationships, their duties to one another in relationship. So, wow, we got it all done. Can you believe we covered...